to speak to you in this particular session on how to apply a biblical worldview. For these past several months, we've been going through a study on a biblical worldview and how it, uh, it affects our lives. This is the practical application of it. And I've given you two familiar verses that we'll read here in just a moment. 1 Peter 3 and verse 15 and then Jude 1 and verse 3. We know that a biblical worldview applies to every area of life. I didn't give an extended definition here this time on what a biblical worldview is, but I want us to think rather how the biblical worldview is an integrated framework through which we see the world. So this is not a compartmentalized church thing that only applies to when we come together as the body of Christ, but this is every day. This is how you live your life and how you process all the things that come your way and how you do things in a way that honor God and help you follow after Him. A biblical worldview applies to uh, Christian theology. We've talked extensively about theism, the importance of the Trinitarian view of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And when we think about Christian theology, we're thinking about the affirmation of the existence of an intelligent, powerful, loving, just, awesome God, uh, who exist in the Trinity as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It applies to Christian philosophy. We've talked a lot about supernaturalism and how supernaturalism is positioned over and above and against the system of naturalism that says this world's all there is, all there ever is going to be. God is the supernatural God who acts in his creation. It applies to Christian ethics, particularly as it relates to moral absolutes. God's moral nature is absolute and unchanging so the things that come from his moral nature and his character are absolute and unchanging and they apply to the area of Christian ethics they apply also to Christianity and science specifically as it relates to creationism only creationism can account for the design and the order that is in nature ultimately a Christian psychology as it relates to the mind and the body the whole person the spiritual as well as the physical. Christian sociology in the family, the church, and the state, all of these are important to God and to people and society. It applies to Christianity and law, the divine law and the natural law. We know ultimately that God is going to take his law, which is based on his character, and he's going to judge the world according to his righteousness. Christianity and politics relates to freedom and justice and order in the world. We know that even from a Romans 13 perspective, that God has ordained the government to keep order in the world. Uh, it has a, ultimately an intended limited function, although that's not the case. But it's something that God puts in place for safety and order and structure in society. Christianity and economics relates to stewardship and the freedom to seek fulfillment and then finally, Christianity and history relates to the meta-narrative that we've been talking about from creation to the fall, to the promise, to the redemption, ultimately to the consummation. So I want to begin with 1 Peter 3 and verse 15, and here's what the scripture says. This is Peter writing, he says, But in your heart sanctify Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. You might remember, if you know a little bit about First uh, Peter in particular, that Peter was writing in the context of persecution and difficulty. 
the message was directed to people who were already believers. So this is a Christian message of preparedness. And he's telling the people not to be afraid, don't shrink back from doing good. Uh, rather, we should give a special place to God and our hearts, and we should always be ready to explain our faith or to give a defense, doing so with the right attitude of meekness and fear. When the scripture says, sanctify Christ the Lord as holy, it's referencing the allegiance that we should have to the Lord and to him only. And we can only give a defense of our faith if we've made ourselves ready by knowing the Lord and by knowing the truth. We can't stand for what we don't believe or what we don't understand. Essentially, we're being admonished in the scripture to set aside our hearts as the place where Christ is fully honored as Lord and we're to focus on Jesus as Lord of all. The Greek word translated make a defense or give an answer is from the root word apologia. The term means a justification or an answer given back. It means a reason. It's an explanation of what we believe to be true about a particular matter within Christianity. This is the source of the term apologetics or the word apologist that we use and it means a rational defense of the Christian faith. The hope is within us, and we present it with gentleness toward others. Peter is saying, you better know what you believe, you better get ready and get some courage in the midst of persecution and difficulty, and you need to be willing to take a stand and to be bold and to do it clearly, but you do it as you draw near to Christ and you make him Lord of all. And then now Jude 1 and verse 3 is the other verse I want to make a few comments about. And here's what it says in Jude 1 and verse 3. Dear friends, although I was eager to write you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. The letter of Jude is basically a sermon. In Jude, he's preaching against dangerous practices and dangerous doctrines that put the gospel of Christ at peril. At first, Jude intended to address matters pertaining to salvation. He says, this is the subject that I really wanted to speak to you about or write to you about. But he felt led to tell his readers to aggressively defend the faith, the truth that the apostles had given to the believers. Jude valued the faith, and he said that we as believers are to contend for what we know to be true, the faith that's been delivered to us. The word contend comes from the athletic world. It came specifically, uh, most uh, prominently, in the area of wrestling. And it's a strengthened form of the word meaning to agonize. Contend refers to hard and diligent work. So when we say contend, it is in the present infinitive. And what that means is the Christian struggle is continuous. It's not temporary. It's not one-off, but rather it's ongoing. We should expect, just as Peter was writing to people that were being persecuted, Jude's writing among the context of false teachers and people that would be introducing dangerous doctrines. And he's reminding us that our faith is valuable. So what is the faith? The faith represents the essential truths of the gospel that all Christians hold in common. 
It's not necessarily ever every bit of minutia that might be in a particular uh, framework of beliefs, but it's the core of the faith where we are distributing the truth over and over, but it's been delivered once and for all to us. So it's not a work in progress. It's not something that's fluid. It's not something that's determined by uh, the majority or social mores. It is something that God has given us by His Spirit working through people. It's been delivered once for all to us. Now we in turn have the privilege of being able to share it with others. What I want to do in these few moments that we have together this evening is I want us to consider how to live out our faith and how to apply a biblical worldview as we do it. First, if you want to live out your faith, you need to apply a biblical worldview in your devotion to God. Apply a biblical worldview in your devotion to God. This relates to knowing God. This relates to your devotion to where God's more than an idea, but God is the one who is most important of all to you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. A biblical worldview can draw us close to God because we know him better. When we're talking about our devotion to God, we're talking about the attributes of God that teach us something about him, that give us greater insight into his character and his person and how he relates to his creation. Millard Erickson, the theologian, said, when we speak of the attributes of God, we're referring to those qualities of God that constitute what he is, the very characteristics of his nature. So what are some things that would shape our understanding of and form our devotion to God? Certainly the truth that God is spirit. Uh, John 4 and verse 24 says God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And there are many scriptures that use illustrations of God in the form of a man. The Before Christ was incarnate, there are a number of anthropomorphisms in the scripture, meaning that certain things that are typically thought of as human are applied to God. So it'd be the hand of God or the arm of God or the strength of God or the voice of God or these different things that we think about normally describing something about humans is used of God. And what these things do is they don't diminish the fact that God is spirit in any measure. Instead, what they do is they help us understand and relate to God even though they're always limited in how they're used. Worship of God has to be a priority, and we've got to be in a place where we put Him first and we are zealous in knowing God. God is spirit. The Bible also teaches that God is invisible in the sense of His being, in, in terms of Him being spirit. In John 1 and verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only who is at the Father's side has made Him known. So through Jesus, we're given an understanding of the Father. So you understand the significance of the incarnation, even as we're celebrating this Christmas season right now. You go a, a layer down and you begin to think about the magnificence of what God did in sending His Son. That this God who is spirit and who's to be worshipped in spirit and in truth, and this God who is invisible, whose glory cannot be approached, decided to tabernacle among us. This was a part of His eternal plan. And He came to us that God left heaven and came to earth Jesus Christ manifested the presence of God on the earth and that is an amazing thing to think about we also know that God is complete uh, 
meaning that he does not need anything to be who he is. Acts 17 says in verse 24 and following, says he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath. Now, we're dependent on other people for many things. Uh, God is not. You think about the normal course of your day, just the schedule that you keep and the responsibilities of your vocation or the responsibilities you have for your family or the things that you're needing to get taken care of. We're dependent on other people for so many things. And if, if they don't come through, then we end up sometimes not having what we needed or not having it when we needed it. God is dependent on nobody. God is complete in and of himself. And because of that, he's the one who supplies everything that we need. And then God is eternal. We've talked about this several times throughout the study. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible does not present a proposition to prove the existence of God, but rather declares God and who he is. He is the eternal God. He has no big beginning or end. Jesus describes himself as the Alpha and the Omega. It helps put time and eternity in perspective for us. So as this relates to your biblical worldview, uh, sometimes we get so wrapped up in things that are just absolutely temporary. It might be a temporary problem, temporary situation, temporary circumstance, and at the moment it feels like something eternal, but it's really not. And if we have a biblical worldview and we can look to God and we can say, listen, God's in charge, he's in control, he's still sovereign, he's still the eternal God, even though I don't have the immediate answer to my problem, I trust him, and that's going to change how I live because I'm applying my biblical worldview in my devotion to God. So in summary, he's all-powerful. We use the word omnipotent. He's all-present. We use the word omnipresent. He's all-knowing. We use the word omniscient. And then finally, God is all-loving. He's omnibenevolent. It rains on the just and the unjust. And this God, who is all of these things has made us for a relationship with him. I want you to think for a moment about the contrast between biblical Christianity and the religions of the world. The religions of the world predominantly are man-centered. Christianity is God-centered. Christianity is about the relationship that God has with his creation. And we are born again into the family of God. God wants us to know him, to draw near to him, to pray to him, to love him above anything else. And there's a, a man by the name of uh, Simon Vey who said the only way that we can love people is if we learn how to pay attention to them. But then the question becomes, am I paying attention to God? In my life, am I drawing near to him? Am I depending on him because I'm not in control? Think about the rich and the powerful in the world. And this is not true with everybody, but it, it is a problem, especially when fame comes along with it. When you have uh, plenty of resources, and particularly if you have a lot of people who are uh, constantly telling you how wonderful you are, you can begin to think that you're in control. We all have this tendency. You don't even have to be mega rich to have this tendency or mega famous or anything else. But we have this tendency to think that somehow we're in control, that we're something, and we're actually not. We're dependent, we're needy, and without God, we have nothing. So we have to learn to pay attention to his voice because apart from him, we don't know where to go or what to do, and we don't know where our source of help is.
Second, if you want to live out your faith, apply a biblical worldview in your decision-making. Apply a biblical worldview in your decision-making. Now, the first point of application related to knowing God. This is the devotional aspect. And then now, the second point here uh, relates to living for God. So we're drawing near to God so that he draws near to us. And now we're thinking about how do we apply this as we live out our faith and our decision-making. Listen to what C.S. Lewis wrote. He said, every time you make a choice, you're turning the central part of you, the part that chooses, into something a little different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable decisions, you are slowly turning the central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature by simply making the decisions that you make. Let me state this another way. I believe that solid decisions are made by discerning the will of God. There's a lot of talk. I don't know how many books have been written about discerning the will of God, knowing the will of God, doing the will of God, all the things that go along with the will of God. Well, here's a blessing for you. God does not want to hide his will from you. He's revealed himself to us so that we can know him. He's given us truth and righteousness in Jesus Christ. We have all the righteousness we need. We're declared righteous if we're in Jesus. And he wants to guide us as we live our lives. Now, sometimes he makes us wait. And this is the hard part. Sometimes people think that because they have to wait and it's not abundantly clear, the next step's not abundantly clear, and yet they're praying and they're asking and they're hoping and they're they're seeking. They think somehow God's trying to hide his will from them. That's not the case. God might just not be ready to reveal to you what that next step is but he's going to show you the way. And I think one of the reasons God reveals his will to us specifically in our lives as he does is because a lot of times we just couldn't handle it. People say, oh, I wish I knew what was going to happen five years from now, ten years from now. You you probably don't really want to know. You probably just want today, and you probably want grace enough for today so that you don't have to worry about that. But we can make solid decisions if we uh, discern the will of God. I believe decision-making begins with values. It's not uh, surprising to you that it's common today for organizations to communicate their core values, which reflect why they do what they do. There's very much controversy in the late part of the 19th century and into the 20th century as it related to theological liberalism and the subject of modernism. They kind of went hand in hand. Uh, There was a lot of wrestling, for example, in our circle of churches in the early part of the 1900s related to the statement of faith and the whole issue of modernism and and what had come along with that. And what rose in the 20th century as a defense against modernism and theological liberalism was what was called Christian fundamentalism. Now, Christian fundamentalism gets a bad rap the word fundamentalism actually gets a bad rap because it has been used to describe some extreme versions of various things. I mean, you all know that. But the word fundamentalism is actually not a, it's not a bad word because it says that we're holding to some fundamentals, right? So there are some foundational things that we hold to that are the fundamentals of the faith. And the ones that were identified in Christian fundamentalism were that the inspiration of the Bible Uh, is by the Holy Spirit, so therefore the Scripture is inerrant. Now, we've talked time and time again in this Christian worldview study about how your view of the Bible shapes everything. 
So if you believe the Bible, that's going to set you in a certain direction. It's going, to, it's going to put you on a certain course. If you don't believe the Bible, it's not going to. But that was the first thing they held to. They also said they held to the virgin birth of Christ, which was uh, at stake for many in the Christian, in, in the liberal uh, uh, theological circles especially. And some of that even crept into some of our seminaries in the, in the 70s and even into the early 80s. The next thing they held to is the belief that Christ's death is a substitutionary atonement for sin, followed by the bodily resurrection of Christ, and then the historic reality of Christ's miracles, because part of theological liberalism took out the underpinning of the supernatural. And they said, yeah, he's a good teacher, moral teacher, and that's where the social gospel movement took root, was in that type of soil. Uh, so it became almost to the extreme. Now, as a church, we hold to both convictions and values for which there are some overlaps. Uh, we communicate our convictions as biblical truth, passionate praise, focused prayer, radical generosity, and intentional outreach. Biblical truth, passionate praise, focused prayer, um, radical generosity, and intentional outreach. And then when we speak in terms of our values... Our values are to love God and to love people. Uh, our values are that every member will serve and use their spiritual giftings. And then we will advance the kingdom of God through multiplication. Every decision in your life begins with values. And what you believe at your core. You understand, everybody has core beliefs. And most people's core beliefs will be revealed in the measure that they'll be revealed in will be dependent on how a person how far a person gets pushed in a particular direction about a particular issue in other words you can find out what people believe when they really get pressed or get under pressure or it relates to somebody in their family or it's going to affect them materially i mean there's a lot of different reasons why but when people get pressured then that's where it comes to the surface what they really believe and hold to Decision-making is to be directed by wisdom. And I'm not going to turn and read this passage of Scripture, but I want you to make a note of it. A good example of this is found in Proverbs 15. In verse 7, it says, A wise person spreads knowledge. Verse 12 of Proverbs 15 says, A fool resents correction. Verse 14 says, A discerning heart seeks knowledge. And verse 18 says, Patience in the midst of conflict calms. Verse 22 says there's wisdom in godly counsel. Verse 28 says there's wisdom in thinking before speaking. And then verse 33 says there's wisdom in fearing the Lord. I believe wisdom is applied often based on proximity, perspective, and experience. And here's what I mean by that. We are a lot more able to apply wisdom to a situation if our proximity to it is close enough that we have a good perspective. And if we have a good perspective and we have sufficient information on the circumstance at hand, then we can also apply some of our experience and life experiences come behind us and spiritual experiences come behind us and we can make those decisions. Decision-making is also to be guided by prayer. And I think we all experience doubt from time to time when we make decisions 
is this a good decision? How's this going to affect the rest of my life? And how's this decision going to affect this person or this family circumstance or this set of decisions? When praying about decisions, ask God to give you wisdom to make good ones. Pray and ask Him for patience and direction and protection. And the Bible says many are the plans in a person's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. And I think sometimes our impatience drives us to a lack of prayer and causes us to jump to decisions that we may not have properly prayed about. And I believe also that you can over-spiritualize a situation and sometimes the decision is obvious. You know what you need to do. And in that circumstance, you just need to get on with it. You, you need to pray your prayer. You need to know in your heart and go ahead and make a decision. Um, it's not more spiritual to say you're praying about something and not doing something you know is the right thing to do. That's called disobedience, not spirituality. Uh, so be careful when you're applying the prayer principle. Decision-making is best when it's not hurried. I have made the worst decisions in my life when I arrived at a short-sighted solution. Now, I, su I suspect you're probably the same. People often rush into decisions. If you don't take the time to examine what you're trying to do, you might choose unwisely and not make the right decision. And then I think decision-making should be guided by the peace of God. The false peace of the world remains uh, visible, but it's out of reach. People are always searching for it. But the peace of God can be rested on when you trust Him with the process and the outcome. Jesus promised he was leaving us peace in John 14 and verse 27. And I think that's so true. This might be a little bit of an ambiguous uh, um, confidence builder as well. But one of the things that I've found through the years is when everything else lines up, it, it seems to be the right decision. It's not contrary to the word of God. Other counsel in my life would confirm it the door is opened or the opportunity is placed before me all of that can line up but if the peace of God is not evident and you're getting like a check engine light as it relates to that particular decision and you're certain it's not just from your fear or lack of faith and you don't have a peace about it I'm telling you you better stay away from it you better not do it and if you have a green light and those other things line up, then you need to go forward with confidence. But the peace of God, while it is subjective, is also a very helpful principle to apply. And I think the key is the closer we walk with God, the more we understand His intentions for us and His intentions for His world. We pick up the heartbeat of God and our will is more aligned with His. And one of the things I often say is that uh, a lot of things have been blamed on God that God's not responsible for. Meaning that we line up with the spiritual talk. I mean, we're good at it in churches especially. I and mean, we line up with these spiritual talks of, well, I got led to do this, I got led to do that, I feel, feel this or feel that. Well, God told me to do this, told me to do that. Okay. Number one, it has to line up with the scripture or it's just nonsense. But number two, you need to be careful about over-spiritualizing things and give credit where it's due, but don't blame something on God that you're not really supposed to do just because you want to do it. And it makes other people feel better about it because you said God led you to do it. 
uh, that finger has to be some type of balance in there to where we're seeking God's peace and we know for sure that this is, is the will of God. And let me caution one, one more item with uh, decision making. We have in uh, evangelical Christianity, especially I would say in the last century, probably over-spiritualized decision making in the sense that we think if there's a door A and a door B and we pick door A and door B was our destiny or our fate or whatever else word you want to use then everything's lost, everything's sunk that's nonsensical because there are at times in your life door A, door B and door C and none of them are sin they're not disobeying God directly they're just options that are in front of you and you've got to have some ability to apply these principles so that you know which option is the best but by God's grace we've all made really poor decisions in our lives every person in this room has made some poor decisions and God saw us through it and he was faithful and he still will be faithful and we should not seek to make poor decisions but what I'm saying is don't analyze it to the point that you build it up so much in your mind that if you don't pick door A and you pick C, everything's sunk. That, that's not true. And that can be true even with some big decisions in life where God's given us these options. So I like to think about it like guardrails. And God puts uh, those spiritual guardrails in place, but the guardrails on the road are in place so that you don't run off in the ditch. I saw a car over uh, headed toward St. Albans today, and I still don't know how they did it, but they ran off the road and they went way out in the woods in the trees. Uh, middle of the day so I don't know if they were on the phone or what the situation was but had there been a guardrail there they wouldn't have gone that far they would have stopped right there on the edge of the road well God's word is the guardrail the Holy Spirit is the guardrail and he helps us uh, with that framework of decision making third if you want to live out your faith apply a biblical worldview in discerning truth and error apply a biblical worldview in discerning truth and error first point had to do with knowing God draw near to him he'll draw near to you second point had to do with living for God and being able to apply this in terms of your decision making now we come to the point of processing information what does the word discern mean it means to distinguish it means to separate out by diligent search it means to examine it's also related to wisdom discernment is learning to think God's thoughts after him having a sense of how things look from God's perspective and in some measure being able to apply that. Now, 1 Corinthians 12 mentions discerning of spirits as a spiritual gift. I want to address this idea because there are a number of things in Scripture that are spiritual gifts that we might not have that gift, meaning that we don't have a special measure of it or a spiritual gift particularly, but we still have the discipline of it. I often use the, the uh, issue of giving as an example that some people have the spiritual gift of giving. They just love to give. They like to give stuff to people. They like to help people. They like to always find a need. And it's like just this spiritual satisfaction that they get because of giving. But whether or not we have that doesn't negate the fact that we are to be faithful and responsible in our discipline of giving and in our stewardship. That's just one example. There are a number of that in the scripture. Uh, and this would be one as well that there might be a, a gift of discernment where a discerning mind is needed and a biblical worldview helps shape that 
but then these are things we can learn and apply as well. Chuck Swindoll said we need discernment in what we see and what we hear and what we believe. This definition of discernment also stresses accuracy as it's the ability to see the truth. It's the ability to tell the difference between truth and error and it's basic to having wisdom. Now you might remember that wisdom is personified in the Proverbs. And Proverbs 1 um, describes wisdom as someone that we can get to know. Now I think ultimately that is an application to Jesus Christ as the personification of wisdom. So it's a precursor to that. It's a foreshadowing of that. But it's a reminder to us that wisdom is not just this, uh, just this body of information, but it's actually something that we can get to know in our hearts. Think about King Solomon. He was known for his power of discernment and making some wise decisions and some moral judgments. Uh, but at times when he depended on himself, he got himself into trouble as well. Sinclair Ferguson, the preacher, said discernment is like the physical senses. To some, it's given in unusual measure as a special grace gift, and that's what I was referring to. But some measure of it is essential for us all, and it must be constantly nourished. The psalmist prayed in Psalm 119, Teach me good judgment and knowledge. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 21 says, But examine everything carefully, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Jesus Christ is the embodiment of wisdom from God. So spiritual discernment, don't miss this connection, spiritual discernment is something that comes from knowing Jesus Christ. Why is it so clear that this comes from knowing Jesus Christ? Well, when you're saved, what happens to you? You're sealed by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God takes up residence in your life. He's the one who authored the Bible. So he's the source of truth, having breathed out the Word of God to the servants of God. So when we know Jesus, we have the Spirit, we know the Word, we draw near to the Father, then this is where the discernment comes in. Paul prayed for believers to discern what is best until the day of Christ. I believe discernment intersects the Christian life at every point. There is not a specific scripture that addresses every situation in life. But there are principles in the Bible that address every situation in life. And we need discernment now more than ever. Spurgeon said discernment's not knowing the difference between right and wrong. It's knowing the difference between right and almost right. And that's particularly true as it comes to Christian circles today because there are many that are using the right language. They're talking about the same concepts that we do, but they're way off from what the Bible is teaching. So we need that discernment now more than ever. Fourth, if you want to live out your faith, you need to apply a biblical worldview in doctrinal considerations. This is the last point, but this has to do with guiding and guarding the truth. You remember that the word doctrine means instruction, especially as it applies to application? It's teaching. So when the Bible says that it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16, it's profitable for all of those things, but it's profitable especially for teaching. And we've got to be careful about what we believe and what we teach as truth. Now, I think we could use this phrasing uh, interchangeably, if you will. Christian doctrine is the same as Christian teaching. 
Teaching is the aspect of delivering it. Doctrine is the aspect of believing it. But it goes hand in hand because what we believe, we teach. And we do that because we've been instructed by Jesus to make disciples. So therefore, we want to teach what has been instructed to us. And doctrine has some significant effects in our lives. Doctrine helps us keep, uh, helps keep us anchored. The Bible is the foundation upon which we and as individuals and churches uh, build our doctrinal statements and our positions. And it helps keep us anchored. I would never go to a church that didn't have a statement of faith. I wouldn't do it. And there are a lot of churches like that, that that they might even have one, but it's so far in the background you couldn't find it or you'd have to do an investigation to find it. And sometimes along those lines they'll say, well, we don't really like to get in those divisive issues. Well, that's a big problem because truth divides at times. The gospel's a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and doctrine will help us keep anchored. Doctrine is the worldview by which we direct our lives. That relates to the decision-making that I already talked about. But the truth is, doctrine is often not tolerated. In fact, we have a warning about what's to come from Paul some 2,000 years ago. And he said, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. How can we walk in the truth when we're under fire is part of this discussion. Now, I think this relates to our day-to-day -day living as well, especially if we're going to try to share the gospel with people because we're going to encounter people that have different ideas than we do or they just outright reject what we believe or they say they really have no belief at all or maybe they hold to a system of naturalism or these other isms that we've talked about. We've got to know what we believe and then we have to have the courage to be able to apply it and we need to communicate it in a way that people can hear it and understand it. Now, ultimately, God's got to do the work in their heart. He has to soften hard hearts. He has to take the scales off of people's eyes. But we can be difference makers, even if people don't ultimately agree with us. And I believe doctrine guards and guides the church. Sound doctrine is expressed in biblical preaching, teaching, instruction. And if God's word is the heart of the church then it's been said that sound doctrine is the blood that is pumping from it. It's bringing life to the whole body. And doctrine itself is not enough. It has to be applied. We've got to use it. And that's why we're bringing this whole study together on the developing a biblical worldview because you have to ultimately apply it. And our discipleship can't stop with information. We are to experience transformation and then we're able to live that out among the people that we're around. And doctrine summarizes the Word of God and it contributes to the health of the church. Now here's an illustration that might help us think a little bit further about this. There's a piece written about a series of highly skilled uh, players and a series of non-players who were shown a series of chess boards with the chess pieces complete for about 5 to 10 seconds each. Later, the grandmasters could remember every piece on the board. The average players, only maybe four or five pieces on the entire board. Why did the chess grandmasters have such an amazing ability to remember the pieces? They didn't have superior IQs or better memories. Instead, the real reasons the grandmasters could remember the game board so well is that after so many years of study, 
they saw the boards in a different way. When average players saw the boards, they saw a group of individual pieces. When the masters saw the boards, they saw formations. Instead of seeing a bunch of letters on a page, they saw words, paragraphs, and stories. Expertise is about forming internal connections so that the little pieces of information turn into bigger networked chunks of information. And learning is not merely then about accumulating facts. It's about internalizing the relationship between the pieces of information. So now we go back once again to our understanding of the significance of the meta-narrative of the Bible. A lot of people don't understand the Bible because they, they'll drop in and read a verse here, a verse there, a story here, a story there, but they've never really been discipled in what's the big story of the redemptive plan of God and the glory of God for the ages and what's going to come of this earth and what's going to happen in the end and what can we expect in eternity and all these big ideas. If you're just pulling a piece out here and there, but you can't see all of it fitting together, you're not going to fully understand what it is that God is, has communicated to us. And doctrine enables us to see the relationship between the pieces of information. Now let me make one more point about this before I close. You'll see this evidence often in false teachers. And the way that it's evidence in false teachers is they'll take a verse out of context, just rip it out of context, and build an entire theology or entire system of thinking with that one verse or with that set of verses. And what they've done when they do that is they failed to see the big picture because Scripture interprets Scripture. And you can't just take one proof text that may not actually be communicating what you think in that moment is communicating. So for us, we need to see the big picture so that we can refute it too when we hear somebody proposing something or, or advancing something that's only a piece, but it's misinterpreted and it's not right. So we have to apply this biblical worldview to doctrinal considerations. I close with Proverbs 2 and verse 6. For the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. I do not believe that a biblical worldview is shaped and implemented and then forgotten. I think this is part of our sanctification process. And I think the further we go along in our walk with God, our life with Christ, the more we deepen in our understanding of the Word, the more surrendered we are to the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we're maturing, we're growing in Christ-likeness. And we get more and more adept at applying what we know to be true to everyday life. And in that way, our lives are not compartmentalized. We don't think about the church thing that we do once a week when we're here together like this or on a Sunday morning or something, but we're thinking about life with God because I believe that the essence of Christianity is life with God. And if we understand that, and we understand that that takes place through our faith and our, through our following Jesus, that changes everything. And the biblical worldview becomes a reality for us as we apply it to our lives and also to our homes and our families and, and, uh, and to our church. And that's 